Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Well, who's a reader? Raise your hand if you're like legit a reader, not like, oh, I read, but you finish, you stop reading after three chapters. So we got like eight readers. Perfect. What's, what is a book that you have reread over and over again, but it's a novel, it's, it's non-fiction, or it's fiction. Anybody have like a fiction book that they've reread? Lord of the Rings, okay, thank you. That's what I was going to say, Lord of the Rings. Sean says boo. Anybody, like C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, those are pretty amazing. Uh, when you read like fiction, powerful fiction, and you finish it, and then you're kind of drawn back to it, something amazing happens, um, you learn new things than the first time. Okay, I might, I might give you something easier to understand. Does anyone re-watch TV shows? <laughs> Raise your hand if you watch TV. Okay, all right. Same idea. You go back to a TV show and you see things that you hadn't seen before. That's what it's like, um, revisiting familiar themes in the Bible. And we are... Uh, in Palm Sunday today. It's the Sunday before Easter. Um, This is the beginning of Passion Week. The Christian church has celebrated Passion Week since Jesus ascended into heaven, over 2,000 years. Um, It's the last week of Jesus' life told by the Gospel writers. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're brief snapshots of the life of Jesus in his three-year ministry. They're, They're not comprehensive, Most of the Gospels are pretty to the point. In John chapter 20, he says that there are not enough books in the world to contain all that Jesus had done. There weren't enough books in the world written to contain everything that Jesus had done. And so the Gospels are meant to give a picture of Jesus, but they don't give every single detail. But it's interesting how much focus the Gospel writers put on Passion Week compared to the rest of their writings. The book of Matthew is 28 chapters long. 28 chapters. Three years of ministry, 28 chapters. Matthew dedicates eight of his 28 chapters to the details of the last week of Christ. Mark, he's notoriously short-winded. In his writing, he dedicates six of his 16 chapters Six of his 16 chapters to the particular details of Jesus' last week. That's 37%. The other 10 chapters are dedicated to three years of ministry. Luke uses five of his 24 chapters, and John dedicates the most with nine of 20 chapters dedicated to the particulars of the last week of Jesus' life. I think there's a lot of reasons, but... The most prevalent one is that we learn a lot about who Jesus is and how we are supposed to be by Jesus' response and action in the face of betrayal, agony, pain, and in the midst of death. The particulars of Passion Week teach us how calm and secure Jesus is in the face of pain. It can be intimidating as a pastor, well, as a young pastor, to preach familiar themes Because they're familiar, and it's really easy to say, well, I've heard that before, and so I'm just going to kind of go to sleep. And and so the goal is to see that in narrative, 
In biblical narrative, every time you go back to a familiar story, you learn something new. When you are engaged into a story that you love, into a story that you love, and you rewatch it or you reread it, you see new things. And so that's the goal, that in biblical narrative, we're able to go back to familiar stories and learn something new about it. Because the more that you dive into the story, the deeper the well becomes. And here's the thing about Jesus, the well does not run dry. And so that's the reason that we teach Palm Sunday the week before Easter, and we will until Jesus returns or until I'm no longer here. Because we want to go back to familiar themes and learn new things about our Lord. The direct implication of biblical narrative, the direct implication of biblical narrative is that our lives, Christians' lives, would be oriented in the right way based on what we learn about what was happening. The natural flow of narrative is that we prioritize right because we know right. It's less command in more learning and so then prioritizing. We make changes in how we live based on what we learn. And so why are we celebrating Palm Sunday? We could just skip it and on Friday talk about the cross and on Sunday have the resurrection Easter. But without Palm Sunday, we don't have a king. And without a king, there's no kingdom And if there is no kingdom of God on earth today, that is very bad news. But we do have a king, and we do have a kingdom. Rome had conquered Jerusalem about 100 years before Jesus entered the city. About 100 years before this. In Rome, they were known for their cruelty and oppression. They would give protection to their conquered cities, but it came with a catch. They were allowed to do whatever they wanted. They crucified criminals on a cross. Our symbol of freedom was their symbol of torture. I mean, nailed to a cross is a terrible way to go. And they did it to a lot of criminals. They overtaxed the cities that they conquered. And then they would convince, in this case, the high-ranking Jews to... Um, oppress their own people for their own gain. And they would protect authority figures, especially religious authority figures, and allow them to oppress their own people. They were known for feeding people to lions. Feeding people to lions. They weren't great. It wasn't amazing to live under Roman protection. I promise you that. And the Israelites had been waiting from a quiet God for hundreds of years, for a king that was going to come establish his kingdom on earth, a place for them to live and to be free. That prophecy that I read in Matthew 21 comes from the book of Zechariah, one of the last books in the Old Testament. And this is one of the last things that they heard from God, and then he was silent for hundreds of years, that there would be a king that would ride in on a donkey to establish his kingdom. Whether it was Rome or the Babylonians or the Egyptians, God's people were often under the rule of someone else and they had been waiting for a king. Now Jesus comes along and he talks about the kingdom 118 times in the Gospels. 118 times in the Gospels he talks about the kingdom that's coming. 
And it looks like this. It was going to be a place that was full of peace. It was full of love. It was full of justice where people will live in harmony with God and with each other. And Palm Sunday is the first time that Jesus announced publicly that the kingdom is here and he is the king of the everlasting kingdom. Now remember, for years now, Jesus avoided his title. I mean, he healed people and they wanted to crown him right then and there. He had to run away. He had to run into the woods, and he was chased by a crowd one time. It's this amazing passage in Luke. I still don't know how it happens. It says that Jesus just, like, escaped in the midst. He just got past this crowd. He avoided large crowds who were trying to crown him early, and the disciples tried to crown him too. And as Jesus' answer was always, it's not time. But with Palm Sunday, it was time. Jesus proclaimed, I am the king. One of the big lessons that we learn from Jesus is that he shatters expectations. The people always thought he was one way and he was always better than they imagined. He was misunderstood for years. He broke bread and multiplied it and fed a crowd. And they didn't understand that he was trying to say, feed on me. He was misunderstood for years. And his mission wasn't clear to the people, but now it was. Now it was. He was the king. John tells us later in chapter 20 that the whole reason that he wrote his gospel is to help people see Jesus for who he was. The whole purpose of celebrating Palm Sunday for us is to be reminded and reset to see the king for who he really is. It's one of the reasons that we get together regularly and why we have to get together regularly because when you orient your life around who Jesus is, you are overcome with a peace that surpasses all understanding. That's what the Bible says. But when you don't see Jesus for who he really is, and you don't build your life around that, and you build it on something else, your life will inevitably crumble. That's why the writer in Hebrews says, do not avoid meeting together as is your habit, because we will forget. We will forget. It's what we do. And so the point is to be brought back and to be reminded that we have the best king who cares about us. In Matthew's description that I read, Jesus orchestrated every detail of his triumphal entry. He was no longer being subtle. Everything that happened on the day was done because he made it happen. And so Jesus orchestrated and publicly proclaimed his kingship to tell us about himself. There are many things that we learn about Jesus in Palm Sunday. Last year, I talked about how Jesus was a good king, he was an impartial king, and he was a soul-saving king. You can extrapolate this out for years. We're still going to teach about the king. The well does not run dry. But this morning, we're going to focus on how Jesus shows up as a subversive king and what we can learn about the subversive king. When I say sub- subversive, what I'm saying is that Jesus was undermining the systems and the culture in place. When I say subversive, I mean that Jesus undermines the expectation of who he was going to be. Jesus will not establish his kingdom in earthly ways. He came to subvert the system instead of overthrowing it. 
the government. And instead of overthrowing the government on hand, he began an infiltration of the city that was not built by the sword. It was built by the hearts of the people. And so this is the subversive way of Christ still today. Instead of overthrowing governments, he changes the hearts of the people who will influence the cities and the towns that they're in. We don't get our way by drawing swords and mowing down people who aren't like us. We subvert the culture by having our hearts changed. And then we influence our cities and towns through Christ. And so I want to focus on three ways that Jesus was subversive in his triumphal entry. I read Matthew 21, but I want us to focus, and this is in your bulletin, in John chapter 12. It's briefer and it's a little easier to follow. John chapter 12, it's the same story. Uh, 12 verses through 16 here. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. That is an amazing passage by John. What he's saying is the disciples were confused for almost all of Jesus' ministry, and it wasn't until Jesus ascended into heaven where they realized, oh wait, everything that we just experienced was the fulfillment of the scriptures before. And so they didn't quite understand what Jesus was doing even in the triumphal entry. It took until Jesus was glorified in heaven. Pretty amazing stuff. First way that Jesus was subversive as a king is that he came to Jerusalem with peace instead of violence. He came to Jerusalem instead of, with peace instead of violence. When Rome conquered Israel a hundred years before, they arrived into the city on war horses. This was common for the empire. They would conquer a city. The military leaders would do the heavy lifting of battle on their war horses, and then Roman royalty would march into the city on war horses as well, symbolizing that they were strong, symbolizing that they were the true royalty. Symbolizing their ability to incite violence against anyone who was against them. The Romans were not beneath demonstrating their power on the innocent just to show strength. This was the greatest empire ever at this point. They were terrifying and their entrance on war horses was Rome saying, don't even think about rebelling. You are going to be crushed. We are too big and too powerful, so don't think about it. This is how Rome entered Jerusalem a hundred years before, establishing their kingdom in that city. But let's consider how Jesus entered Jerusalem. Verse 14 and 15, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. 
Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. It was tradition that the way that you entered a city was the message that you were proclaiming. It was the message that you were saying. Entering on a war horse meant you were coming with war in mind. You were going to take the city by force. But if you entered the city on a donkey, now Jesus wasn't the first to enter the city or cities on a donkey, but entering a city on a donkey symbolized you were arriving in peace. It was like waving the white flag. So Jesus was subversive by entering the city, not as a warmongering freedom fighter, but as the prince of peace sitting on the humble beast of burden. Guys, this is important for us to know. Jesus could have begun an armed revolt right then and there. His people were ready to fight. They cry out in this passage, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. He had large crowds following him. That's what it says in verse 12. The large crowd that came to the feast followed him. At one point he fed 5,000 men and women and children. Another point, he had 3,000 men fed, women and children as well. Jesus could have garnered the numbers to take the city back. And his crowds were ready to storm the Romans and overthrow what was there and place Jesus on the throne. But Jesus was not there to temporarily sit on an earthly throne. He subverted the culture by coming in peace on a donkey to say, I am here to establish my eternal throne. The power that comes by violence leaves an unimaginable wake in the aftermath. If Jesus and his people overtook Jerusalem by force, they would have had subservience and they would be the oppressor themselves. But the power that comes by peace is the power that truly changes an entire culture and city and nation and world. Jesus did not announce that he was king by beheading Caesar Augustus. He announced it by being the peace that surpasses all understanding. Now this is completely countercultural, and we see that today because when things don't go our way, when things don't go our way, we have literally started armed revolts in the name of the Lord. When people feel oppressed, we pick up arms and we want to go take back what's ours. And Facebook is full of people making these threats. Full of it. So I know it's true that that's the natural way that we act. Our kingdoms have been taken down and so we're going to do what we need to do to get it back. When we are wronged, the natural response is not peace. It's not. But Jesus is completely subversive. Normally, in the face of oppression, violence shows up. But Jesus defeats oppression with peace. The world tells us to take our kingdom by violence, but Jesus subverts the world's way by creating a kingdom of peace that can't be touched. How are you going to stop a kingdom that doesn't need a castle or a territory? 
How do you stop a kingdom from spreading that doesn't need to protect itself with violence? You can't. And in the book of Acts, we see the kingdom of God explode when faced with violence because we don't need to take back what's ours. The kingdom of peace cannot be touched because historically when Christians are persecuted, it produces more proclamation of the name of Christ. And so take our castles, it doesn't matter. Our kingdom will go wherever we are. Jesus set forth an incredible standard where our allegiance should stand. The kingdom taken by violence will also be taken back by violence. That is the history of our universe. But the kingdom that is established in peace cannot be touched. This is how we continue to fight for our kingdom on earth today, in Ohio, in Worcester. It doesn't matter. It does not matter what forces are over us because our kingdom doesn't lie within the building or within our structure. It's an eternal kingdom that has no borders and it's built on peace. I mean, that's subversive. The second thing that we learn, the way that Jesus was subversive, is that he came with humility instead of pride and bravado. And this is pretty directly linked to his peace. But he also came with humility, which is really important because people who have mass followings, people who have mass followings typically gain their followers by, big per, by their big personalities. I mean, this is true right now, whether it's politics or it's celebrity churches or it's YouTube influencers, mass followings are usually attached to somebody's ability to puff themselves up more than they really are. The projection of the false self. Look how great I am. Follow me. These people become larger than life. Here's the issue. The followers become a means to an end. The pride of leadership oftentimes runs over and crushes anyone in their way. If it is me, and I must sit on the throne, wherever it is, anyone that gets in my way will be a problem to me. The pride of leadership runs over and crushes anyone in their way. And our, our culture celebrates it. And so did the culture of the first, king, uh, the first century, because kings, kings ride into cities with armor and create subservience. And this is how Jesus was expected to ride into the city. He had large crowds behind him. But Jesus rode in with his robe and sandals on a donkey in humility. He was trying to show us that true power comes in the form of a servant. Kings ask their countrymen to die so they can live. That's how your kingdom stands. And the kings of our day do the same thing. When our kings, quote unquote, kings and queens, are caught doing something that would tarnish their legacy, the PR move is to blame shift, to say they were misunderstood, to say, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Our kings ask the followers to die so they can keep on living. But Jesus did the exact opposite. 
He died so his countrymen and women can live. Jesus rode in on a baby donkey and was more powerful than all of Rome put together. And his humility shows us where real strength comes from. It didn't come in beating his chest. I mean, do you guys understand? He had like thousands. He could have created a throne and made them carry him in on a throne with like pom-poms flying. And it, it could have been very, very proud. But he didn't come in beating his chest or blasting his horn. And he didn't grandstand. He came in quiet and humble, and the crowds puffed him up. He established his reign on a donkey. This subverted the culture because the people were looking for a powerful, strong warrior king. But they didn't understand that Jesus' power came from his humility. And they also didn't understand that his strength came from weakness. And this is the third way that he subverted the culture and that he was a subversive king. It's that Jesus saves through weakness instead of strength. He undermines the normal way that, that things happen. This is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel. Jesus came on a donkey in weakness as the king who saves. And his peace and humility as a snapshot of the way to salvation. He liberated his people through weakness instead of strength. His people were expecting a government overthrow. They expected a battle cry. They expected the crowds to turn into armies, to be built strong and big, and for the people to have something to believe in, to join the revolution. But Jesus didn't save his people that way. Instead, he chose weakness. This is subversive. Imagine who plays Risk. Anybody have four hours on their hand? Jimmy! <laughs> Risk is one of my all-time favorite games. It's about world domination. Ryan's played with me before. Imagine playing the game of Risk, and your strategy was to dilute your troops and allow your countries to be overtaken. You know what would happen? You would lose. Because the goal of risk is to build up your armies as strong as you can against the bordering countries. Because the natural way to win a war and to win a battle and to establish yourself as a king is to build strength in numbers. If it's 100,000 to 10,000, doesn't matter how many of our troops don't make it, because we're going to take out the 10,000. But Jesus is not natural. He would not acquiesce to their way. Jesus rode into the city on a donkey and allowed himself to be imprisoned and treated like a criminal. And he allowed himself to be humiliated in kangaroo court. And he allowed himself to be crowned with thorns and to be mocked and to be spat on. And he ultimately went to the cross of death and weakness too. Pete Scazzaro in Emotionally Healthy Discipleship says, says it this way, As Jesus hung on the cross in the worst moment of his earthly life, his final prayer was a question that he quoted from the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What kind of model leadership is this? Couldn't he have demonstrated 
strength in faith by quoting another psalm, such as, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want? Here's the thing. Instead of displaying strength by quoting the psalm of comfort, he showed weakness by crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was through this weakness that Jesus offered full salvation for anyone who would believe. The gift of freedom is offered through weakness. And this part's extremely important for us. The gift of freedom accepted is accepted in weakness too. Jesus demonstrated that to be able to save the world, he must be weak. To show us that in order to accept this saving grace, we must too be weak ourselves. The point of the gospel is that we are saved through weakness and not through strength. That's amazing because guess what? Not like nobody can be strong. Everybody can be weak. Jesus could have freed them from the Romans. He could have. But what would have happened if he freed his people from the Romans and that was their only liberation? This would have freed them from their oppressors, but it wouldn't have freed them from their own sin, which is the true oppressor. And Jesus went in weakness to the cross to save you from your sin too. The best freedom that you can experience is not freedom fighting your culture. The best freedom you can experience is freedom from your own sin. Freedom from the Romans would have been far too little liberation. What they needed and what we need is freedom from ourselves. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The qualifications to come to Jesus, and these are the only qualifications that Jesus will accept, to enter into rest is to be burdened and heavy laden. That's where the gospel is most subversive to the culture. Instead of cleaning yourself up, to enter rest, you have to accept your burden. And you give it to Jesus. Here's the thing. If you don't think that you're weak, you will never be strong in Christ. True salvation is becoming weak in yourself so that you can become strong in the weakness that Jesus displays. That's the ultimate message of Palm Sunday. That Jesus showed up in peace, humility, and weakness to subvert the culture and create a bigger liberation. To create a bigger kingdom. A kingdom, again, that has no borders and no walls. A kingdom that's been around for thousands of years. A kingdom that moves wherever you are because the kingdom is in you. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Strength and bravado would have been temporary fixes, but weakness and humility gave an eternal fix. The subversive king came not to overthrow the rulers of the world. He came to change your heart. That's what he came to do. And I want to finish with this. In the midst of Jesus' peace, and humility, and weakness, it is extremely important for you to know and for us to note this morning that Jesus is still 
king. So he's still the king, which means he is the ruling authority. In Matthew 21, we read to begin the, uh, the message, we learn that Jesus meticulously planned his entrance. He told his disciples exactly what to do to acquire his donkey. He planned the entrance into the city. It wasn't happen chance. He was announcing as clearly as possible, I am the only king. This is an extremely important piece for us to grasp from the story. That Jesus, in all of his mercy and grace, in all of his compassion and kindness, in all of his healing and communing with you, everything that he offers, salvation and freedom from sin, it is all available at the throne of the king. But Jesus is not someone that we pick and choose. Palm Sunday is the announcement that he is everything that he ever said that he was. He's the best counselor and the best shepherd and the best friend. But it's also the announcement that he is not going to be any of that for you if he is not first your king. The submission to the subversive king gives you full access to everything else. But you don't get the gold until you bend the knee. There were many times in the Bible where Jesus drew the line in the sand for people because he cannot go against himself. He said things like, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven if you don't have me. You can't be satisfied. He didn't say you can kind of be You can't be satisfied if you don't feed on me. You can't be happy if your God is money and it's not me. You can't have real knowledge unless you see that the Scriptures point to me. And in each of these instances, the crowds and the individuals left Jesus' side. And it made Him sad. In fact, in about the middle of Passion Week, Jesus weeps over His city because He knows that they cannot be saved if they don't bend their knee to Him too. And it breaks his heart because Jesus can't be anything less than the king and he knows it. So all the good that comes with Christ comes first with the submission to his kingdom and his authority. This is what Palm Sunday is all about. You get the, if you get the humble king, you get the whole kingdom. But you do not get the gifts of the kingdom if you don't pledge allegiance to the king. And to be a citizen of God's kingdom is to be a citizen of a kingdom that will not be shaken. It will never be crushed. You will be dignified and loved as a child of the king. But I don't want us to leave this morning and think that we can pick and choose which parts of Jesus we want and we get to throw away the rest. You get it all, and it's all amazing, it's all incredible. But it does not come if he is not the king and the Lord of your life. And here's even better news about Jesus as the king. He's the good king who lays down his life for his people. He's a good king who never breaks a bruised reed or quenches a smoldering flax. 
He doesn't crush you in your weakness. He's a good king that if you will submit, gives you real, genuine rest. So the question of Palm Sunday is, will you submit? Will you surrender to the King of Kings today? Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.